Please turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Let's pray. God, we ask you to just take these words today and bring them home to our own hearts. Father, what an incredible, incredible narrative this is. And we just thank you that you have uh, just protected it through all the centuries and millennia that we can read it and know that this is what you did with Noah and his three sons, the progenitors of our race, Lord. Thank you for this now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Noah and his family disembarked from the ark after over a year's time being in the ark, the world that they entered was a new world. The animals that accompanied them would be the animals of the new world. Noah's sons would be the progenitors of the new beginning of humanity, And everything was new. Everything was changed, at least outwardly. How utterly impactful this new world must have been upon the eight souls that were saved by the bountiful mercy and grace of God. And yet how utterly terrifying it all must have been. The fact that God reinstituted his creation blessing of life and of life ongoing and expanding is indicative of the potential Noah and his sons had for initial fear that they too might not live on. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we read the Bible and the accounts in the Bible, we just blow right past stuff. It's like, Noah got out, happy days are here again. Are you kidding me? We need to delve into, and and, and I know it's speculation, but honest to Pete, these people were just people. They were people. And they experienced something that was just absolutely horrific. You see, the changed world spelled a change in the relationship between man and their environment. Mankind had now moved even further from their original home in paradise, even further from being cast out of the garden. And the definitive cause for God to wipe out the earth And everything that lived on it, everything that he created to remove it all from the face of the earth, everything that had breath due to the fact that he said this, then the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was man's sinfulness against his creator that brought Yahweh to the point of such judgment. And Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives were saved from that judgment. Now the outline of Genesis 9, 1 through 7 is quite simple actually. And it's bookend. It's it's very, very concise. In Genesis 9, 1 and 9, 7, God affirms or reaffirms his original creation blessing, doesn't he? Look at 9.1. And God said to Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And then 9.7 says, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So those are the two bookends, 1 and 7. It's reminiscent of God's blessings from Genesis 1.28. That's what he told Adam and Eve. Yet, there are some major differences post-flood. Note how God's creation blessing seen in 9, 1, and 7 form those bookends and the changes of the post-flood are contained within verses 2 to 6. So when you look at this, look at the bookend, verse 1, verse 7, and then all the changes are right in between there in 2 through 6. What are some of the changes? Well, first of all, the fear of man within the animal, bird, and fish kingdoms came about. That was brand new. Now, again, if we put our thinking caps on, if God is pronouncing that the fear of man would be in all these animals and birds and fish, it's understood that it wasn't prior to that, right? Stop and think about that for a minute. What was the earth like before the flood? What was the interrelationship like between animals and people? Secondly, that every moving thing is now given as food to man. That's new. Thirdly, except for flesh with blood still in it, because that was not allowed. And then you've got human government established, as the life of man is not to be taken by a beast or any other man, and there is a demanded consequence, a life for a life. And the reason given for that, capital punishment, if you will, whether a beast takes a man's life or another man takes a man's life, speaking generally here, it's because they are created in the image of God. We have been created in the image of God. We are God's regents on this earth. And so to take away the life of a man is to take away from an image bearer of God, and it's a direct affront to God. And the consequence for that is a life for a life. It's never been rescinded. Never been rescinded. Now, God's creational blessing was reaffirmed in verse 1. The initial book end. God's pronounced blessing is a renewal of the original blessing God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden with some modifications, and it had to have been reassuring to Noah and his family, and there are a number of reasons that I say this. Why did he lead off with that? I mean, a whole year, to the best of our knowledge, there was no communication of God or Yahweh with with Noah. And then we first hear him telling Noah, finally he breaks the silence, and he says, go out from the ark, you and the animals and your family. That was the first word. The second word is this word right here in verse 1 of chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why would God lead with that? Well, I think there's a very good reason. Here's one of them. Noah and those with him all realized that they were sinners. They knew they were sinners. And having just come through a full year of God's unleashed wrath against the sinfulness of man, that was not lost on them that God judged the world because of sin, and they were sinners. So if we just gloss over the human element of this account and consider Noah and his sons to be some kind of super saints, unaffected by all this, they were human beings just like you and I are. And they had to ponder how God might relate to them after the flood. Might he not take them out? I'm sure that would have run through my mind. He had already shared his thoughts regarding mankind in 821. This is post-flood. He says, The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is, present tense, evil from his youth. And although those were the thoughts of Yahweh's heart, and we don't read that he shared them with Noah and his family, they had to know Their own sinfulness before God could be a problem. 
but would it be the undoing of God's mercy and grace? Noah displayed this knowledge when he offered that sacrifice in 8, 20, and 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And last time we were together, I told you that that offering was both an offering of thanksgiving, but also for propitiation, for the satisfaction. They were admitting they were sinful and that they needed God's covering. And so they offered that offering on that behalf. And the Lord smelled the sweet savor, it says, of Noah's amazing sacrifice. He knew Noah's heart. And by extension, the heart of his sons and the wives, and he accepted Noah's sacrifice. We don't see that he says that he accepted it, but the fact that he smelled that sweet savor is indication of his acceptance of Noah's offering. So those are two reasons that I think that there's quite a a change here and an affirmation of God's love for him ongoing. Noah and those with him realized they were sinners. And secondly, the Lord Yahweh smelled of Noah's uh, sacrifice, a sweet savor. He accepted it. And thirdly, God's next word to Noah is one of blessing. The words in over a year came as a command for him to go out from the ark, 8.16. Genesis 8.16. His next word to Noah is a 9.1, and it was a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I can almost hear the collective sigh of relief from Noah and his family. Oh. He wants us to continue on. They must have thought God will not destroy us. He's confirmed his steadfast love to us, and he'll allow us to live. And not only to live, but to prosper and to be plentiful as people, sinners though we are. We will go on. We will have children, and our children will have children, and we will fill the earth with our offspring. We truly are safe and secure. Now, God promised Noah that he would save him. We know that from chapter 6. But don't tell me that Noah's thoughts might not have trended towards, are we okay? Are we okay? Now, look at verses 2 through 4. Some of the changes in this new world. It says, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given In the original creation, God did specify that man was over the animals that he had created. Um, That was an understood fact. Man was the pinnacle of God's creation. He is God's regent on earth. Adam and Eve were. And their submission, the animal submission to God's regent on earth was clear. But I wonder if you've ever considered what that might have been like. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so man is at the top of the creative pyramid and all creation is under his rule as God's representative, his regent. Does the fact that the post-flood God struck the fear of man into the hearts of the animals, fish, and birds, indicate that pre-flood, especially in the garden, pre-sin, but possibly even after the fall, that man's dominion over the earth and the living creatures was without fear, and that a more direct relationship between man and God's creation existed? I say yes. We don't get a lot of backfill. We, We don't understand a lot about that time. But if he struck these animals with the fear of man after the flood, I'm led to believe that they did not fear man prior to the flood. The fish, the birds, or the animals. What kind of an existence was that? Now it says the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast. And here's a new element in the creation order. Man is still at the top. 
He's still God's regent, but now there's a subjective sense of fear and terror that the animal kingdom has toward mankind. There's a single idea expressed by those two words, <coughs> fear and terror. The term fear carries along with it a sense of dread or dismay as seen in the term for terror. And the two are often used as a couplet in the Old Testament to get across the central idea of alarm and panic. Okay? It's used at least 17 other times in the Old Testament to get that idea across. Sometimes it's in the admonition from God to his people where he says, do not fear or be dismayed. Same, same two words, Deuteronomy 121. Or when God is reassuring his people that they can do what he has commanded them and he encourages them and he says, no man will be able to stand before you. The Lord your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. So he uses these terms to, to assure them that it's okay and the fear and dread will be upon all your enemies. Now, man's dominance is established and enhanced. He says, into your hands, these animals are given. The new element in creation was caused by God. Don't forget this. This is important. And the fact that it is a temporary thing, I cannot stress that enough. This is a temporary thing that is regulated. This was not what it was like in the beginning before sin entered the world. And the wonderful truth is that it will not be like this in Messiah's kingdom, millennial kingdom. You understand that? This is a temporary fear that God has struck into these creatures. Now, a possible reason for the fear, why would God do this? Well, God knew that animals vastly outnumbered the people saved from the flood. There are two of each of the species, and there was only eight humans. He knew also their reproduction would be much more rapid than that of the human race. And possibly, possibly, their superior strength and numbers could allow them to overrun mankind. It's a new world, a totally different situation going on here. So in a portion of Scripture that sets out a number of regulations, the animal kingdom is also regulated to observe the superiority of man according to God's creation structure. Romans 8, 20 through 23 tells us something very interesting. The creation was subject to futility, not willingly, okay? but because of him who subjected it. But it will be, it will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But presently, the whole creation groans and suffers because of sin, because of man's sin. <laughs> I think oftentimes we think of salvation and Jesus dying on the cross and everything very, very me-centered, right? Oh, I'm saved, I won't go to hell. It's so much bigger than that, people. It en encompasses the whole creation that God has created that has now been marred by sin. Right down to the creeping things and those things in the ocean and the birds of the sky. In fact, next week when we talk about the covenant, we're going to see that the covenant that was made with Noah was also made with the animals. And the earth, God made a covenant that's an everlasting covenant with the animals and not just with mankind. Remember, this restriction here, this fear that's been placed in animals is temporary. The idealized picture of creation pre-fall where not only man but even the animals were living harmoniously with one another and with man shows that this is a temporary imposition of fear and dread on the animal kingdom. And not God's idea of one that honors him and brings him glory. One interesting note, when we compare Genesis 9-2 with God's giving man the rule over the animals in Genesis 1, 26-29, the original uh, 
giving of rule. Contrary to Genesis 1 passage, in this passage in Genesis 9-2, there is no mention of cattle. Where there is a mention of cattle in Genesis 1. And this presupposes that not all animals feared man. The requirement of the fear of man was struck into the animals and the fish and the birds, but it was not in domesticated animals. Cattle would be representative of that. But this temporary situation is only for a time. And, you know, every so often, even in this day and age, we see the hope of harmony between the animal kingdom and mankind. In the fall of 2000, there was a young man who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to end his life. Plunging over 220 feet at 75 miles per hour, he hit the water and he shattered three vertebrae. Realizing that he was still alive, this man began to be filled with an intense desire to live. But the weight of his clothing kept pulling him under. He kept struggling to get on top of the water and kept going under in the water. And, and, and he continued to struggle to live, grasping for air. And suddenly he felt an unusual force from below and lifting him up above the water's surface where he remained until the Coast Guard came to rescue him. Only later did he discover the mysterious presence that had kept him up and saved his life, helping him to be on the water's surface, supporting his body until the Coast Guard could come to him and rescue him. It was a sea lion, a sea lion kept him afloat. And we've heard of people that have been surrounded by porpoise, right, out in the ocean when there were sharks and the porpoises protected them. Folks, I'm getting goosebumps. What do we have to look forward to in the millennial kingdom when this is rescinded, this temporary restriction on the animal kingdom? It's just amazing. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, please. Isaiah chapter 11, let me read verses 6 through 9 for us. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, the millennial kingdom is an intermediate kingdom. God is all about his kingdom. And after the church is raptured from the earth, which means Christ returns and calls his own people, all believers, since the day of Pentecost, off the earth to meet him in the sky, and we will be with him forever from that point on, all believers will, then what descends on earth is a period of seven years of tribulation. It's called Jacob's time of trouble, and it is going to be a horrific time of suffering on earth where God basically is dealing with Israel once again and chastening them and bringing them to a point where they're ready to repent and embrace their Messiah, which comes at the end of that seven years. But at the end of that seven years, then Jesus returns and us with him, and he begins to set up his throne in the city of David, Jerusalem, where he will reign for 1,000 years with a rod of iron. There will be nations still, and there will be people still. But at the beginning of that millennial time, it's all believers. It's all believers. There's a judgment of the sheep and goat. You can see that in Matthew 25, I believe it is. And so only believers will enter in there. We're going to be in glorified bodies. And there's going to be mortal saints that made it through the tribulation without being martyred, and they will go into the, into the millennial kingdom. So you've got mortal people with people with glorified bodies. You say, how can that happen? Well, how did Jesus interact with his disciples? You realize Jesus is in a body right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father? There must be something about bodies. We're, we're dirt. We're of dirt. We're here. We're earthly people. 
And, and this just blows your mind. During the millennium, we read in verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them, and the cow and the bear will graze. What? Will graze. Hmm. And their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Hmm? The lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play in the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on a viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wolf with a lamb. Wolves don't hang out with lambs today. The leopard and a small goat or the kid, the calf and a young lion. Are you kidding me? Young lions eat calves. That's what they do. And a little boy will lead them. And there's a cow and a bear. And there's a nursing child playing by the hole of a cobra. And a weaned child will put his hand in a viper's den. Can you imagine what it will be like when animals are no longer afraid of mankind? And we get just a little sense of that with with our friend, the dog. Not everybody here is dog people. I am. And my dogs bring me the greatest joy. It was so good to get home from vacation and see my boys. I'm serious. I love those guys, and they love us. And they bring much comfort to us, right? Or how about this? The, the majesty of such animals, such as horses, and the relationship that people have established with horses. They're so powerful. And yet the loving, kind relationship. And horses have helped people out very much in times of need. This is only a hint of what we look forward to in the millennium. And certainly in the new heavens and the new earth. Because heaven is not this ethereal place of spiritual existence up in the clouds someplace. Heaven is here on a new earth. And we'll have bodies that are suited for that new earth. And it's exciting. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's what gives us the strength to stand in a world that is just absolutely filled with evil and wickedness. And we see it being more pronounced day by day. Wow. Too many of us think of the kingdom of God and heaven as some spiritual existence, but the Bible teaches us a different picture an author that I love, Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H, has written two books recently. He Will Reign Forever. It's all about the kingdom of God. And the second one, uh, very recent, just the last couple months, The New Creation Model. In those books, he stresses that our eternal destiny, rather than being only a spiritual existence, he says, the picture is not of an eschatological or last time's flight from creation, but the restoration and redemption of creation with all that entails, table fellowship, community, culture, economics, agricultural and animal husbandry, art and architecture and worship. In short, life and life in abundance without sin. That's what it's going to be like. It's, it's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp. It's living on this earth and working without toil, without sweat. Psalm 8, 6 through 8, reveals man's mandate to rule over the creatures of the earth, and such mandate has not been rescinded. You made him rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and, and also the beasts of the field, lion and tigers and bears, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas, whales and sharks and seals will all be docile in a new and exciting relationship with mankind. Zechariah 8 paints a wonderful picture, one of the most lovely and warm pictures of what the kingdom, the millennial kingdom now, not the new heavens and new earth, the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year kingdom, 
It's far removed from some spiritual existence. Instead, it sounds more like the idealized manifestation of how God created us to be on this earth. Here's what it says. This is in Zechariah 8, 4 and 5. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. You think they're sitting in the streets of Jerusalem now? No, they're in bomb shelters now. And each man with his staff in his hand because of age. Millennial kingdom here. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. You cannot get a a warmer picture of community and, and, and life without fear than what was just painted in Zechariah. And isn't it interesting that during the millennium, even though there's longevity of life and that when somebody dies when they're 100, it'll seem a very odd thing. So they're going to live longer lives, those mortals, okay? But the truth of the matter is, in the millennium, there will be old age because there's an old man and an old woman and they're leaning each on their staff because they're old. Right in the same passage with little boys and little girls playing in the streets. How beautiful is that? I don't know about you. Are the kids playing in the streets safe and sound now? I don't know where they can do that. When King Jesus is on his throne and reigning from Jerusalem, both the elderly and the young will be talking and playing in the streets. And it shows the aged, even though there's old and young and staffs, they're enjoying life. God's kingdom the blessings of that kingdom are certainly profound, but they can also be blessedly real and simple. It's not ethereal. It's not something that we can't relate to. It's something we can relate to without sin. Now, just another comment. Verse 3 of Genesis 9. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. From vegetarians to carnivores. This is very strange, right? And it kind of addresses some things that are making their way into our culture nowadays. You know, you've got to be vegetarian if you want to be healthy. Well, that's not according to Scripture here, actually. Up until this point, both man and animals were vegetarian. Up until this very point. They're vegetarians. But from this point forward, until Christ's return, we've been given the flesh of animals for nourishment. And even as God originally gave the green plant for food, now he's giving animals for food. Henry Morris commented on this by saying, quote, both before the call of Israel and after the formation of the church, incorporating believers of every nation was free to partake as freely of every moving thing of, that liveth, as he had been previously free to partake of every green herb. Now, he made a distinction there. He said, from the time of Noah up until Moses and the giving of the law, all bets were off. Anything that moved, you could eat. And then from the time of the church, Pentecost, until present day, anything that moves, you can eat. According to the Bible, it's very, very clear. It's interesting that in the law of Moses, which wasn't in force until Moses' day, which Noah, it didn't enforce anything on Noah, when that came about, there were clean animals you could eat and unclean animals that you couldn't. And then when Jesus came and the church began, all bets were off then as well except for a couple of things. You couldn't eat the blood, still, according to Acts 15. You still couldn't eat the blood. But we don't live under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant era. And so anything is, is good to eat. Doesn't mean you have to eat it. The one restriction that God placed on it is just don't eat anything with the blood still in it. But you know, it's very, very interesting. You, you can 
not eat meat if you want. But it doesn't say that vegetarianism is best. But there must be something there because pre-sin, it was all vegetarianism all the way up until Noah. So there must be something there. So what am I saying? Don't eat steak? Forget about it. I say just eat and be happy. And if you don't want to eat meat, fine. God bless you. But, you know, it's not mandated because some people will actually tell you. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it says it's okay to eat meat because everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. And the verse right before it, 1 Timothy 4, 2, is a warning. It says, beware of men who advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So let it be forever laid to rest that it's better to be a vegetarian and not to eat meat. Not according to 1 Timothy. Don't let anybody put you under that restriction. And there are some that do. So be careful of that, okay? Now, even though we've seen that for whatever reason, the ideal pre-fall and post-second coming in the millennium, vegetarianism will be the way things are. Why? Why do I say that? Well, do you remember in Isaiah where I was reading? Um, (laughs) The cow and the bear, the bear is going to be eating straw. It goes back to vegetarianism. Very interesting. But these are little nuggets that we just blow right past. We don't even think about these things. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we have the institution of human government. I could spend months here. And I do, I'm looking for a time where I can show you all of, uh, a movie. And it's a movie on our response to government. And it's two hours long. So we're going to have to have an evening service that starts at 5. But... Um, I don't know, maybe in between Christmas and Easter sometime. We'll do an evening service, five to, you know, whatever, and we'll have time to pray. But um, I'll, I'll get to you on that. I want to show you something. But I want to talk about this right here, uh, the institution of human government, verses five through seven. It says, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So we see that the biblical scholars call this the institution of human government, and the reason is is that there's a new set of conditions for life on earth that were introduced here. The term require is used three times in verse 5. First having to do with any beast that takes a person's life, but then addressing... Uh, any man or any other human being that would take a person's life. This is capital punishment. In Romans 13.4, which talks about government, it says that the government bears a sword to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Okay, human government. This is where it was established, Genesis 9. And this is a new condition set up by God because previously such requirements were not enforced. Think of Cain who killed Abel. Was he killed immediately? No. Now he was punished. There was a mark given to him. Or how about Lamech who killed a young man, yet we do not even read where God judged him. He didn't mark him. So this is a brand new situation that has come upon earth. Now there's a clear requirement established by God. A life as payment for a life that is taken, whether by animal or man. And the reason that God gives for this is because people were created in the image of God. In James it says don't even curse another person because they have been created in the image of God. I don't think we give ample um, weight to the fact that human beings are created in the image of God. We're image bearers. Even if they're not saved, they are image bearers of God. not saying that they're all saved. I'm just saying that they bear the image of God. 
when government is established by God. Genesis 9 shows us its origin, and Romans 13 spells out this truth very clearly when it says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there are no authority, there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Some take Paul's statement here to the extreme, because there's two extremes you can go to with government, okay? The first one is refusal to recognize it. That's anarchy. We're kind of moving into that. God says that there will be lawlessness on the earth, and the Antichrist is called the lawless one. So refusal to recognize it. But the second error that we can slip into is to regard the state more highly than it deserves. Both extremes are wrong. Okay? Romans is very clear as to what the state's responsibility is. When it says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. For it is a minister of God to you for good. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. It bears not the sword in vain. Okay? Government is to force and to maintain good. That's what government's job is. It's not to take care of us. It's to punish evil. And when the state no longer operates as a minister of God, it has been ordained to be promotes and protects evil and punishes good, the Christian's role is to remind the state of its responsibility and to challenge it to operate accordingly. Did you hear what I just said? You see... Romans 13 is not a blanket statement that we are to just submit to anything the government ever tells us to do. That was tested, wasn't it, just recently? And some of us had a difficult time with that. We struggled with that. I know we did as leadership in the church. How do we handle this? I mean, they're really getting into our kitchen here. Well, you can't sing. You can't pray. You can't meet together. When the Scripture says... Forsake not the meeting of yourselves together. And so there are parameters that God gives to the government as his minister. It's just like if I were, I'm called to be a minister. I'm called to be your pastor and elder. There are qualifications for the elder, right? I'm not free to live in immorality. If I live in immorality, do you still respond to me in the same way because of my calling as an elder? Absolutely not. Why? Because I've abdicated that responsibility. You you owe me nothing but to kick me out. (laughs) Right? It's the same with government. You see, we need to challenge it to operate accordingly if it's not operating right. If it's not punishing the wrong and rewarding the good, but instead it punishes good and rewards evil, which it is now doing. In spades. It's wrong to think that the state can instill morality in society. That's not what it does. When the individual members of a society are immoral and evil, they're incapable of being governed by the state that upholds its divine responsibility to punish evil and reward good. Instead, when God's authority is not recognized by society, they are doomed to be governed by the whims or cruelty of corrupt But powerful men, tyranny will exist. And it will reign. And any check on goodness, excuse me, any check on godless rulers will have evaporated. It's the restraint of biblical truth that keeps the governed and the government in check. It is the restraint of biblical truth that keeps the governed and the government in check. And when that's gone, all bets are off, people. The Bible teaches that believers are salt and light to the world. You are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13. The problem is not the state, but rather the low level of spirituality within the church. And Jesus taught about this in Matthew 5. But if the salt has become tasteless, How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
Beloved, look around you at the laws that have been passed that reward evil and punish good. And ask yourself, how did that happen? And I will tell you, ungodly, evil, wicked people voted for that. You've got to have a godly people in order to be governed by godly government that enforces the good and rewards the good and punishes evil. But if the people are evil and wicked in mass, then you're going to have tyranny because it's corrupt from beginning to end. One man addressed the issue this way, a healthy government needs a healthy citizenry. If government cannot produce morality, which it can't, it must be provided with morality from the religious source. If it does not have this element among its people, then the government itself becomes corrupt. And in a declining cultural and moral environment, such as our own, the greatest need is not for moral laws or even for greater spiritual sensitivity on the part of unbelievers. Remember, you know, the the, the memory of Judeo-Christian values that Francis Schaeffer talked about? We're past that. We're in a post-Christian era. And it's not that we need to get guys elected that will enforce moral laws. That's not the problem. Rather, we need confession of sin and deep moving of the Spirit of God among God's people. The cure is not for the replacement of a ruler or the election of a better ruler. It is in repentance and renewal of God's people. Government cannot provide morality. It can only deal in force. That's that's what it's supposed to do. Bearing the sword, punishing evil. But what is really needed is a new apprehension of what is right and wrong, and that comes from God's people who frankly have been quite silent about these things. Separation of church and state, don't you dare say anything religious. What, morality? It's wrong to kill infants in the womb? It's murder? Is is that wrong for us to say? No, not if we're godly, not if we're standing on the truth. You see, the government depends on its people. God has provided a way even for people languishing in a low level of spirituality, and this is the way that he has provided. If my people, who are called by my name, will just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Notice he said, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. In order to be in any position ever to challenge the state when it no longer serves a minister as a minister of God for good, there are at least three things that need to be in place. Okay, number one, we must be fully convinced and live with the conviction that God is truly sovereign in human affairs, including affairs of the state. God is sovereign. He's made no mistakes. Number two, we must know our Bibles and the teachings within it. It's not enough to just be willing to do the right thing but not know what the right thing is to do or to base your behavior on feelings, what you feel. It's got to be based on the truth. Issues are not always black and white. Therefore, we need wisdom derived from the clear principles taught in the Bible for guidance. And that's not only gained through sincere knowledge of what the Bible teaches. We need to study the Bible. And that's what we try to do here okay, at Beacon. We try to study the Bible so that we know these things. And thirdly, we must be willing to surrender everything. Listen, this is important. Even life itself, if that's necessary, Nothing is achieved by those unwilling to suffer and sacrifice. Our culture's incessant pursuit of personal peace and affluence can unduly influence even the Christian mindset. Francis Schaeffer said that our main enemies in our American culture, the Western culture, 
is a seeking after personal peace. Just leave me alone. I don't care what you do. Just leave me alone. And an affluence. I want to get a bigger house. I want a bigger car. I want a nicer toy. Personal peace and affluence are the idols of the Western church. And we need to divorce ourselves from them. We need to take down those altars and destroy those idols. Well, human government is very important, but it has a divinely ordained process that it's to carry out. When it's not carrying that out, we need to stand up and say, you're not doing what you're called to do as ministers of God. And we don't have to be marching in the streets. We just need to be vocal individually. But we darn well better be living godly lives ourselves. (laughs) Right? Otherwise, it's hypocritical. Now, last verse, verse 7. As for you, Noah family, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Noah and his family faced many new challenges in the new world, but God assured them he was with them and that their lives were to be fruitful according to God's wonderful blessing upon them. Be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Life would go on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the clarity of your word and for the calls to repentance that it brings. Father, make us a holy people. We are to be holy as you're holy. And Father, our culture is ubiquitous. It just dominates our thoughts. And Father, it influences the way we think about things. Oh God, let us be influenced more by your word that has been revealed in the Bible. And let us adjust our lives to your word. Not that we become like the Amish people and just wear certain clothes and are peculiar in that way, but, Father, that we're moral people, that we're good people, that we're kind people, that we display the fruit of the Spirit in our individual lives, and then maybe we will have a government that punishes the evil and rewards the good. But until that time, God, give us grace and have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name.